Over 2,000 years uh, in the history of the church, it has been marked all through those centuries uh, by crisis after crisis. Uh, and often in some of the worst uh, moments of the church's history have actually been when the church has been forced to come back to the scriptures and re-examine just what it is that God is saying to us. Uh, and one of the great books that has played such a major part in that is the book of Romans. It is the book of Romans that has again and again opened God's people's eyes to the truth of the gospel, what it is, and what the implications of that are for us who follow Jesus. Over the, these uh, next uh, few weeks, we're doing a series uh, in the book of Romans answering the question that seems to be the crisis today, what is the gospel? So often in these last two turbulent years that we've had, the question on people's minds has been, I don't know what to believe anymore. I don't know what is true. Even people who profess to be Christians are struggling with this, with this question of what actually is the gospel because there are so many variants of it out in the world today. So we're going to look at the book of Romans and we're going to begin uh, by looking at chapter 1 and we're going to read those first 17 verses of Romans chapter 1 which you'll see in your outline uh, is the introduction to this great uh, and amazing letter that God has preserved for us in the scriptures. So let's have a look at Romans chapter 1. We're going to read the first 17 verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and are called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First... I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I have planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why. I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel...
the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Father, will you help us by opening our minds to understand the scriptures and our hearts to receive them and our lives to display them. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Romans is Paul's great letter explaining the gospel uh, to the people in the city of Rome that he had yet to visit. And it's really introducing himself to them and explaining where he stands and the message that he preaches as a way of uh, establishing a relationship with them. And that is why Romans is the great book to turn to if you want to answer the question, what is the gospel? Uh, Because that is what this book is all about. So there's four things I want to unpack from this introduction. And the first is the gospel. The first is uh, the gospel. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Now that word gospel is a is a very significant word. We hear it a lot now. It becomes very familiar with us, gospel truth and so on, and gospel churches, um, and becomes a bit of a church word. But really to understand that word is very important if you're going to understand what Paul is explaining in Romans. In that first century, the word gospel uh, carried quite an important understanding. It, it um, It really was about somebody bringing important news. Uh, a person could be called a gospeler, and he would travel to various villages in the empire bringing important news. And the word gospel really came to be associated with news about great victories in battle or news about, say, the birth of the emperor's son, good news, in other words, which is why people also translate it as the good news. It would be probably the closest English translation to gospel or the Greek word euangelion. And Paul says that his mission is the gospel of God, the good news of God, the royal news, the important news, uh, the urgent news, even, you could translate it as. And Paul is the gospeler who is bringing this important news to your town, to your village, to your screen right now, uh, as has been going for the last 2,000 years. Paul's gospel mission in the Roman Empire is to bring this good news, this royal news, this important news, about the king, Jesus, verse 1, who is uh, the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is Lord, as we will see as it gets unpacked. And so Paul says that his task uh, is to be this servant of Christ Jesus, verse 1, called to be an apostle, a sent one, someone who's sent to bring you the good news, uh, and set apart for that task. He brings that gospel into the world. There's a certain sense in which this word gospel is actually quite a dangerous word. To begin introducing a letter that you're writing to the capital city of the Roman Empire, the place where Caesar's throne is found, and right under the nose of that throne, you are proclaiming the good news that Jesus is king. Christ means king. The servant of Jesus Christ is really saying the servant of Jesus, the king, coming to bring you royal news, good news about God's king. There's a potential for it to be incredibly inflammatory, which it was, and causes 
caused quite a reaction and still does today. And Paul says his task is to proclaim that good news about King Jesus. And what is that good news? Well, that's what he's going to unpack here. And just broad brush in these introductions uh, are a few aspects of that gospel. First of all, the scope of that gospel. The scope of that gospel, uh, in both in history and geography, the gospel scope uh, goes all the way back to the beginning of time, verse 2. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says that the good news, this gospel news of God, is that from the beginning of time God has promised that his son, a descendant of King David, an earthly historical king of Israel, his son would be appointed son of God for all eternity. He would reign as the Messiah, the king, not just over Israel, but over all nations. And that would be proclaimed by his resurrection from the dead, verse 4 says. Paul says this gospel scope goes all the way back to Genesis. It's always been the promise. Jesus is not kind of plan B or a second attempt at things. Jesus is always the plan of God from Genesis all the way to King David in Samuel. The promise to King David in 2 Samuel 7 that he would have a son who would reign over his throne forever comes true in Jesus. And so Paul is saying that the scope of this gospel goes all the way through history, right from the beginning, and will go all the way to the end. And the other aspect of the scope of the gospel is the geography here, verse 5. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul's saying the scope of this gospel is not just historical from beginning to end, but also geographical from top to bottom, from east to west, north to south, to every nation. All the Gentiles can also be translated as all the nations. Paul says his task and the task of every gospel proclaimer is to call people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to the obedience of faith in Jesus the scope of the gospel reaches even to you, wherever you may be watching this. Uh, in South Africa, um, Asia, Antarctic, the International Space Station, the scope of the gospel is to everyone. So the gospel scope, from beginning to end of time, from beginning to end geographically of our planet. And then look thirdly at the gospel depth that Paul talks about here. Paul gives some personal words to people he has never met before. And the thing that's so striking about these personal words is how deep they are, how passionate they are, um, uh, how relational they are. He hasn't met most of these people, and yet he says here, um, your faith is being reported all over the world, verse 8, verse 9. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness. How constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. I mean, for many of us, it's a struggle just to remember to pray for our family and the ones we love. Paul prays at all times for strangers he's never met, believers in Rome who are followers of Jesus. And they've become like his treasured family. And he's praying that he'll be able to eventually see them, verse 10. Verse 11, I long to see you, 
so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And he goes on to explain how he's been trying to come and see them, but has been prevented through circumstances. And all through this letter, you see something of the depth of Paul's heart for fellow believers that he's never seen. And this is only there because of the gospel in his heart. And, and it's one of the signs of a real change in people's lives is how they relate to one another as fellow followers of Jesus. It gives you a heart for other people. Complete strangers can be as close to you as family because you both have a common Savior, Jesus, and a common Father in heaven. And you'll see that change happens as the Spirit of God goes into you, change you, and make you something uh, akin to a real family. Even people you may meet for the first time, if you're fellow believers, you feel like you've known that person forever. You may feel even you like you know that person better than some blood relatives who are not believers. And this is also a strange thing, by the way, about the church, about Christians. Um, the church is not a fishing club where people have common earthly interests. You know, you'll join a, a rugby club or a fishing club um, or a skydiving club because you've got a common earthly interest, rugby or skydiving or fishing. And so when you meet together, you'll get on very well because you'll be talking about rugby or skydiving or fishing. You'll have some earthly interests to talk about. But often when Christians get together, they've got very diverse earthly interests. So one will be interested in chess, and the other one will be interested in, um, in uh, UFC fighting or something like that. And they'll probably want nothing to do with each other and probably think each other's uh, tastes are a little bit strange. Sometimes, actually, the church may seem like it's a lot of odd people who've got very little in common. And yet, there is a depth of connection there that no earthly organization can replicate. It is that deep spiritual bond that overcomes all our earthly differences, tastes, gender, color, culture, overcomes all our earthly differences and unites us in this deep bond that comes through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there is nothing that comes close to that. Though we may seem all a little bit odd and don't really connect because of our different earthly interests, there is a deeper bond. And that's what we look for when we meet together. And that's what we recognize in each other when we meet together. The gospel depth is there because of that common thread that ties us together in Christ. And fourthly, Paul talks about gospel power, and this is really the key to the entire letter. And all the themes of the letter are here in verse 16 in seed form. Here's the reason why preaching the gospel is at the center of Paul's life and purpose. Verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew then to the Gentile. Why is Paul saying I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Well, Paul, a classic Middle Eastern Jew, grows up in a shaman on a culture. And there would have been a lot of pressure on him to be ashamed of proclaiming a Messiah who died as a common criminal on a cross, executed by Gentiles um, as, as a blasphemer, as a rebel, as a pretender to the throne. There would have been a lot of shame poured upon people like Paul for proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah when he died such a terrible death, a criminal's death on a cross, the worst kind 
of execution. There would be a social shame for preaching a crucified Messiah, a Lord who dies like the worst of criminals. And that kind of shame still remains today. There is a temptation to be ashamed of preaching a crucified Jesus. There's a temptation to be ashamed of preaching a Jesus who is exclusive and the only way for all people to be saved. There is a temptation to be ashamed of a Jesus who demands an allegiance to him called the obedience of faith in these verses. That first and foremost, you bow the knee to his word as king, to his kingship over your life. There is a certain shame that gets poured over you because you put membership of the kingdom above even your citizenship of your country. And that can create some hostility and resistance to the faith that we proclaim. There's a certain shame that can come our way when we stand for the gospel. And Paul says he's not ashamed. He's not ashamed. And why is he not ashamed? And why ought we not to be ashamed? Because the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. In these introductory verses, Paul uses that word power twice. The power that brings salvation and the power, verse 4, that brings Jesus back from the dead. The point of the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. The power that brings Jesus back from the dead is the power that brings you to salvation, nothing less than the Spirit's power. Holy Spirit power, bringing you from death to life, just as Jesus was brought from death to life. When you come to faith in Jesus, you are brought, you are brought spiritually and ultimately physically, gloriously, from death to life eternal. When the gospel is preached, that power goes to work. When the gospel is preached now, as you are hearing it, that power goes to work. You see, this is not just some pleasant talk that you're watching or listening to. This is not some Sunday afternoon intellectual exercise. This is the work of the power of God. As his word is proclaimed, the spirit goes to work, bringing people from death to life. Preaching the gospel is not life coaching lessons, which is so popular today. Preaching the gospel is not motivational speaking. Preaching the gospel is not faith healing. Preaching the gospel is not showmanship. Preaching the gospel is the power of God at work bringing people to salvation, bringing people from death to life, just as Jesus was brought from death to life. Some, in some ways, it's a bit risky to even analyze the preaching of a sermon while you're preaching it. But this is the reality of what happens as God's word is proclaimed. The power of God goes to work. We'll see more about that in the next session. But here in verse 17, lastly, Paul touches on what is really the nuclear core of the gospel. This is uh, the mother load. This is, this is the very center of it all, verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, or the righteousness from God is revealed, it can be. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. A righteousness of God is revealed. That word revealed means something that was previously hidden is now made known. Something about God that has been obscure is now made visible. The gospel, the good news of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, is now revealed to the nations, to you, even now, as this word 
is being proclaimed. And you see the very center of what that gospel is. In the gospel, three times the word appears in the sentence. The righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith. The righteous will live by faith. That word righteous appears in Romans far more than any other book of the Bible. Almost all the rest of the letters combined uh, don't come near the number of times that word righteous is mentioned in the book of Romans. The word righteousness uh, or the word justice are the same words in the Greek. And righteousness is a legal word. really means to declare somebody um, innocent, uh, to declare uh, somebody in right standing. And so often we used to say to our teenagers in our youth groups, whenever you see the word righteousness, think of right with godness. Right with godness. You're put in right standing with God. What does the gospel do? It puts sinners like you and I in right standing with God. We're not in right standing with God because we're sinners and rebel, and rebel against him, as we'll see in our next session. But the gospel puts us in right standing with God. It declares us innocent, blameless, sinless, not guilty. And who are those who are put in a right standing with God? Those who are trusting in the gospel. Those who are trusting in the good news about King Jesus. Those who are trusting in King Jesus. A righteousness that is by faith, it says there, from first to last. In other words, that is, that is what saves you, from first to last. It is faith in Jesus Christ. From the time you come to faith to the time you stand face to face with Jesus in heaven. It is faith, from first to last, nothing else. You come, to, into the, you come into relationship with Jesus by faith, and you stand before him at the end of time by faith. Nothing else. The righteousness by faith, from first to last. It is never, ever anything other than trusting in what God has done for you in Jesus. It has never got anything to do with what you have done for God, what you are doing for God, or what you will do for God. Your standing before God is not dependent on those things, thankfully, as you will discover. Your standing before God is dependent on what God has done for you in Jesus. And that is what you trust in. This is so obvious, and perhaps for some of you it may be too obvious, but actually this is what we most easily forget. This is what we most easily forget about the gospel. Because it kind of creeps into us that we're not doing too badly. Or that we've kind of got a good standing with God, and if we just keep doing well, coming to church and all that, we're going to be okay. You're on the slippery slope if you fall into that trap. We are always and only saved by faith in what God has done for us in Jesus, not what we are doing for him. And so Paul quotes from the Old Testament here at the end, a very significant New Testament a quotation, a, a, a verse used in the New Testament a number of times, Habakkuk 2 verse 4, the righteousness will live by faith. And it's interesting when you look at the book of Habakkuk, because Habakkuk is at a time in Israel's history where everything is falling apart. The Israelites' continued rebellion against God has meant that God brings the pagan Babylonians, the superpower of the day, complete wild pagans, brings them to invade Israel destroy Jerusalem and carry off the Israelites into 70 years of exile uh, in a godless nation. And Habakkuk can't believe that God is doing this. Habakkuk can't believe that God is allowing this kind of destruction to happen. When Habakkuk looks around, he will see no visible reason to believe in God at all. He will just see destruction. 
He will just see turmoil. He will just see meaninglessness even. He will see brutality, killing, disease. He will see reason upon reason to say there is, there is no reason to believe that God has saved us. And God says to him, as you see these things that you wouldn't believe if, even if anyone told you, you just trust in my promise and you will live. And that's the message of the gospel to you today. You may look around you and see no reason to believe that God is keeping his promise to save those who trust in him. It may look as if everything is falling apart. We've been through a couple of incredibly turbulent years where many people have been tempted to lose hope and heart. And yet God is saying, if you're my righteous one, you're going to be righteous by faith in trusting in Jesus. Don't shrink back. Hold on to him. And we're going to see in our next session just what, just why it is so necessary for us to hold on to him by faith and faith alone.